some of the extraordinary things that took place in the ministry of Jesus, this is one of, it's just extraordinary. And I'll begin by saying this to kind of set the stage. I remember, uh, it wasn't that long ago, that when you needed a new piece of furniture of any kind, or suppose you need a new mattress, what do you do? You, you used to go to a store and buy one, right? I haven't done that for a long time. Now, you go on Amazon and you buy something, and, you, and a box comes to your house, and you put it together yourself. Now, the mattresses are the easy ones. Have any of you gotten an Amazon mattress in a box and it just inflates right in front of you? Not bad. Well, we needed a new kitchen counter table to give some extra counter space. So we got one and it all came in the box. And I looked at it and I noticed there's wood, there's screws. This has 350 pieces. Count them, 350 pieces. Now, what is it that I would just naturally do? Let's just start putting this together. We can figure this out. It, it can't be that complicated. Oh, sure it could. But even I know enough better. So... What I did was, let's just put on a Netflix show and get started. And it took five episodes, one Saturday afternoon, sets of tools. It had instructions, 10 pages. And there's, there's one key to putting this thing together. Listen. Listen to the instructions. Scrupulously listen. Line, piece by piece. Because there were 50 different kinds of pieces. Five hours of listening, carefully, and it's assembled. Listen. This is an extraordinary theme today. It's summarized by one simple phrase where the majestic God says, this is my son, my beloved son, my chosen. Listen. Listen to him. Listen to him. Now let's think about this. Story. Let's just look at the story for a few minutes. This, there's a name for this, and in the church calendar, there's actually a Sunday named for this. It is the Transfiguration, which means a glorious change. And here's what happened is that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. Now, remember who Peter, James, and John were? They were the inner circle of the 12. 
some of the more well-known ones who would be significant leaders. And they went up on a mountain. And they went, he went up to pray, as was his custom. But while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. In other words, he, he glowed so brilliantly that you couldn't even look. Now, what's going on here? Remember, Jesus is the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, who took on flesh, who took on a human body. And... It is, as it were, as if the glory of his divinity w was veiled to human sight. In other words, you look at Jesus and you saw a human person. But this is a case where the curtain was pulled back, as it were. We have bedroom windows that face east. So what happens every morning? <laughs> the sun shines in and the room is really bright. I need it dark to sleep. So we have very thick, light, veiling curtains to block the sun. In Revelation chapter 1, which was written by the same John who was on this mountain, you see a vision. He sees a vision of the resurrected Christ many, many years later. In the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining with full force. Have any of you looked directly at the sun lately? Don't. You could go blind. But for these few moments, or a little bit longer perhaps, the full glory of Jesus, the curtains pulled back. Pulled back. But then there's more. Two prominent figures, Moses and Elijah, appear and they begin talking to Jesus. Interestingly, for both of these, there was no specific record of their death. Moses went up in the mountain and was buried by God himself. Elijah taken up in a chariot of fire. But in some way, because remember when someone in faith in the gospel dies, their spirit goes to be with Jesus, but for this one time, 
in spirit, they both appear. And they begin talking with Jesus. Now, why Moses and Elijah? These were two very prominent Old Testament figures. Moses representing the law, the law that wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, leader of the people. But the first part of the scriptures is called what? The law of Moses. Then you have Elijah, which was a prominent prophet. Rough, rugged, calling the people to repentance. So they represent the whole Old Testament law and prophets and all that they stood for. And in addition, in Malachi chapter 4, listen to these last, the very last three verses that were written in the Old Testament some 400 years before Jesus. Very last words of the Old Testament. Remember the teaching of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinance that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And then lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and hearts of children to their parents. So in this final prophecy... Before the coming of the Messiah, God says, Elijah will come before the Messiah appears. And remember, Elijah had already lived and died. And to this day, the Jews are still waiting for Elijah. Were you aware of this? At the Passover feast, which they do every year, they leave an empty chair, an extra cup of wine, as a way of saying we're waiting for the Elijah to come because we're still waiting for the Messiah. But in the Gospels, in Matthew and Luke, Jesus had just said, the Elijah that you've been waiting for has already come. Do you remember who it was? Looked at this last week, John the Baptist. He's the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, calling a, a baptism of repentance, calling the people to repent and believe because the Messiah was coming. So Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus, that represented, they had spoken about everything that the people were waiting for, the coming of the Messiah. Now they're here. And they were having a conversation with Jesus. What about? Look carefully. They were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, literally what this says is they were speaking about his exodus. Now, that would ring a bell, wouldn't it? The exodus, of course, was God 
redeeming the people out of slavery in Egypt. And who led the exodus? Moses. Who talked about the coming prophet? Moses. Who talked about the coming Messiah? Who was the precursor to the coming Messiah? Elijah. And wouldn't it be interesting to be a fly on the wall at that conversation? What were they talking about? They were talking about what Jesus would be accomplishing in Jerusalem. His suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Everything that they had spoken about hundreds of years ago, he would accomplish. Now, if you, if you were there, if you were Peter, James, and John, what would you think of this? It was extraordinary. And they were really sleepy. But they were staying awake for this, and they saw this. And Peter was never at a loss for words, was he? So he says, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. Now, what is he saying? He's essentially saying, let's put up three tents for you, Moses, and Elijah, and Maybe prolong this a bit. Now here is what I think he's saying. Is that he's actually alluding to something out of the Old Testament. Because why would he say, hey, let's put up three tents and just keep this going. Well, here's why. The Old Testament had various festivals. The Passover was one of the major ones, but one of the small but one of the ones we don't talk as much about was called the Feast of Booths, or the older way of putting it, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Tents. I remember when I was a little kid, one of my favorite things to do was to sleep out in a tent in the summer. I'd do it with my brother. Once my parents went to sleep, we would get out of the tent and we would run around unbeknownst to them. But essentially, the Feast of Booths was that the, the citizens of Israel would live in tents, tents, shelters for seven days. Why? It was to remind them of their redemption out of Egypt, how they had gone through the desert living in tents. But the deeper point of this wasn't, you know, let's just go on a camp out or something. It was God telling them every year, I want you to be reminded in a very tangible way by you going and sleeping in tents that I 
provided for your forefathers. I sustained them in the desert with manna, with quail, with water. I provided for you as you went through the, de- through the desert. And I think what Peter is alluding to is he's alluding to that and he's saying the consummations here, let's, let's get in these shelters. So it makes sense. But in some ways, probably didn't understand it completely, but in some ways, he realizes the the full consummation, the, the kingdom is here. The Feast of Booths was kind of like our Thanksgiving, when you remember God's provision. And he's probably saying, Let, let's celebrate this, let's prolong this. But he didn't know what he was saying. There was far more to it. Because they were in this cloud. It must have been amazing. And then a voice. God the Father says, this is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. And after the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. You hear that word? Alone. Remember, these are the same words that came on Jesus at his anointing, at his baptism. This is my son, my beloved. Listen to him. Again, listen to him. In the past, you listened to Moses and Elijah. You still need to keep listening. They still are speaking about the consummation of the kingdom. But everything they spoke about is now here, fulfilled in my beloved son. Now listen to him. He is everything that they spoke of. This is an amazing story. So let's just pull this together. What do we learn from this? Three things. First, that Jesus is the ultimate expression of the glory and the plan of God. Jesus is the ultimate, final expression of the glory and the plan of God. Jesus was found alone. He brings the fulfillment of all God's promises of redemption, of new life, of restoring the creation that is radically out of kilter. He's far greater than these two great Old Testament prophets. And this whole story is obviously alluding to Exodus 34, the Old Testament reading that we read Well, remember, Moses would meet with God as a prophet, and God would speak to him. And he would go into the tent of meeting, and he beheld to a certain extent the glory of God. And do you remember what it said? What happened to Moses' face? 
it would glow. And that would be because he had been in the presence of God, hearing from God. And in a sense, he was reflecting the glory of God. Now, how would you feel if I came into the worship service and my face was just glowing like the sun? Like, Pastor Bruce, we can't look at you anymore because our eyes are being blinded. It was like that. And to allay their fear, Moses literally would put a veil on his face so that the Israelites could look at him and not be blinded by his shining face. Does that make sense? This reflected glory of God. And then Paul alludes to this in 2 Corinthians 3, where he's talking about our gospel hope. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 12 and following. He says, since we have such a hope, the hope that we have in Christ, we act with great boldness. Not like Moses, who put a fail over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the glory. Indeed, to this very day when Moses has read a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Listen carefully. In the gospel of Jesus we, in a sense, behold the glory of God. Jesus represents everything that God came to do to save us. And if you are in Christ, that veil that was once over your eyes was taken off because the Spirit gave you wisdom. And we are now in union with the resurrected Christ without fear. The veil's gone. Jesus, of course, the second person of the Trinity, is as glorious as ever. But through his departure, through his exodus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the fact that if you are in him by Christ, you've died, you have risen in him, the veil is gone. And as we live in union with him, we're transformed into his glory. No need for the Feast of Booths anymore. The feast is here. It's all here now. This is my son, my beloved, the one who is the fulfillment of everything these two great representatives of the law and prophets look forward to. It's now here. He is now here. Jesus is the fulfillment of the glory and the plan of God. Second thing is that this amazing event shows that the final consummation of God's kingdom is still to come. There is still another piece to this. Because the world hasn't been restored to its original glory. We live in a broken world. And listen carefully. 
The same Peter who had been up on the mountain wrote 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And he alludes to this incredible transfiguration event. Because in his letter, he is dealing with some false teaching where some people were saying, because we look forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? That's the blessed hope. When all things will be restored. But some people were saying, ah, it's not going to happen. That's nonsense. And this same Peter writes and says, no, listen. 2 Peter 1.16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When? On the top of that mountain, we saw his glory firsthand. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory saying, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. In other words, Peter said, when I told you, when we told you about the second coming and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, we weren't just following stories and myths and nonsense. We already saw, to a certain extent, the glory that's to come on that mountain. When the curtain was pulled away, and he shone like the sun, and we couldn't even look at it. Happened once, it will happen again. At the end of all things. And so the transfiguration represents the the fulfillment of the gospel. But it also says to you, there's a waiting. I hate sin. I hate it. And I hate what it does to people. I hate what it does to the world. You see it in how people treat one another. What we see in Florida this past week, the devastating effect of a horrible hurricane. That's the earth groaning. It's not the way it was ever supposed to be. And we know it. But that's what we live with for now until one day in the new heaven and earth, there will be a Florida, wherever, and that won't happen. And we accept that by faith. But we've already seen the curtain pulled back, the glory of Jesus and his majesty. You can believe it will happen then because you've already seen it. So 
so this looks forward to the blessed hope. But finally this. It shows Jesus is God's revelation. So listen to him. Listen and listen and listen. Is that the scriptures, the, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, the gospels, the epistles, revelation. This is the revelation of God. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the scriptures need to enliven your heart and give you hope. They lead us to repentance. Call us to faith. They point to our triune God. They, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's just no substitute for listening. There was no substitute for me taking five hours to put those 300 pieces together by listening. Listen. And this is why we have an Old Testament. I call you to worship with a psalm. We have an Old Testament reading, a gospel reading, and a New Testament reading. Because we need to listen. And I heard a really good podcast by a guy named Aaron Dabiani. And, I, and he wrote a book, From Earth Filled with Heaven. And basically what he said was this. Is that very often... It is very easy to be more enthralled with someone, probably a big name pastor in America, talking about the scripture than actually listening to scripture itself. And I just want to read something he said. He said, You've got to always, he said, sermons are important, obviously. But you've got to read. You have to listen and listen over time. And he said, until recently, Christians have always read, sung, and prayed Scripture publicly. This practice grew naturally out of the practices of the Jewish synagogue, where the Torah was read for the spiritual benefit of all. And one of the early historians said, a reader takes up the Scripture reading clearly so that people can hear. The people, many of whom are illiterate, listen closely and attempt to memorize passages of the scriptures. And he says, imagine this, a mere hundred years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, his people gathered to drink in the pure words of God together. Illiterate women and men yearned to hear the words they couldn't read themselves. In other words, many people back then couldn't read so they read, they listened, and they listened, and they listened. And I encourage you in your own life to listen to the scriptures. Some of it you don't understand. It's not easy. It's a long book. But it can't change you. You can't believe it if you don't know it. And if you need some ideas of how you might do that, please talk to us. We'll be glad to help.
but the scriptures are the gospel, the words of life that all point to Jesus, to whom we are to listen. So I encourage you, listen and listen and listen because we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed and you will do well to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Listen. Amen.